ask a question. Uh, if it's a hard one, I'll let Daniel swing it at first. Um, questions from this whole series, questions remaining from this. And again, I do reserve the right to punt, but uh, you haven't had many t- much time to ask questions through this. So ask away. <laughs> Colleen. Thank you. Um, so I've missed a lot of the, I haven't been here for a few weeks, um, but one of the things you mentioned today, we were talking about, or you were talking about churches and like separating services, right? So yeah. there's a traditional or a contemporary, yeah. um, or even like that, you know, a singles or married couples yeah. or, or that. So um, I appreciate the way you explained it and why it can be dangerous to separate those out. Um, and I don't disagree with that at all. But my question would be, isn't, would you consider that that's still a way to bring people in? Um, I, I don't want to make law where there's no law. I don't want to say it's sinful. Right. I see dangers of how doing so could work against God's purposes. If people have that in their minds and they're being cautious, could someone do it in such a way to avoid those dangers? They might. I'm just saying that to me looks dangerous. Like it could move in the wrong direction easily. I don't want to say you're wicked, you're wrong. I just want to say at least one another person who's done that has thought that through and has an answer. If they've never even considered that, my fear would simply be I get how pragmatically, I get how utilitarian in a utilitarian sense, it makes sense. I get how it's going to be most cost-effective, and it's going to, you're going to be able to focus your ministry and all. Have you even considered this other thing? And if you have, what's your thinking on it? That would be mainly my concern. I wouldn't want to make a rule and say, if there's a church that's multi-service, they're sinning. No. I have these concerns, and I'd want to hear what somebody has to say in response to it. So I'm not trying to make some new law. Right. Is, is okay. That... No, that helps. Yeah, I'm just thinking of okay. some... Um, maybe like a college, I, I don't know, maybe a, a new believer or someone in college who hears about something and you want them to right. hear the word and you want to get them in a church body, but if they're going to, um, it may be not appealing to them to get them to open their eyes or get them started. Or I think of the singles that, right. um, you know, a single Christian. And I think that that you meant more of the service itself and not just like a singles group. Well, no, let me, let's, let's be clear. We have a youth group, right? We single out by age. Um, and we, we have other th- things where we can group people out. I, it's not that doing so is wrong. I, I don't want that to be the point at all. We want to be careful that whatever we do, we're not working against the greater picture of our unity. So there are some churches where the youth literally, until they hit high school, never do anything in the room with everyone else. I think that's incredibly dangerous. And I think the fruit of much of that ministry is these kids have no part of the church because they have no commonality with the church. They've always had it their way, their songs, their staff, their thing. And they're really not part of this church. They're doing their own thing in the same building. Um, I think that's incredibly dangerous. Uh, so as long as we are mid, so we ourselves are now we're doing it in part because younger people we, we cannot learn at the same level as other people. There needs to be age appropriate learning, right? So for for kindergartners or first, second, third graders, we're going to have age appropriate learning. We still think it's important. I still have my little ones come and to church because I want them to get this custom and this habit, even though 
Talitha and Eliana probably aren't picking much up from the service, but they're seeing it's important for mommy and daddy. They're seeing these are your family, this is your tribe, these are your people. That's all helpful. So I, I'm not saying you can't break things down and have a you know, newly married small group or something. You want to be careful lest you're working against the bigger picture because it frequently does happen where you end up with basically multiple churches that call themselves a church, where you've got these multi-plant, multi-service churches. Over time, what you end up with is two or three churches governed by the same group of leaders because all the people who gather for the 9 o'clock service, well, they're a church. It's a sense in which congregations need to congregate to be congregations, and assemblies need to assemble to be uh, an assembly. And that's the aspect that you're in danger with if you're consistently actually breaking things down into subgroups. I'm not saying breaking things into subgroups is wrong. The more you do it, the more you run in danger of undermining the corporate reality. That's, that's the tension I want to put in place. You, you want to add anything to that, Daniel? No. Okay. Okay. And, and please, don't, like, please, to that point, don't, don't hear me making rules. I'm not trying to make laws. People can have great reasons why they're doing it. I'm just saying here's the danger that I, I, I would be aware of. I, th- I think it's... Huh? Yeah, I, maybe I will add something. The, not maybe, you have. Yeah. There's no doubt about I, it. I haven't added anything yet. Uh, Amen. The additional danger is you can do that in the flesh. You can do that without the presence of the Holy Spirit and have an effective, appealing, crowd-drawing event. And the Holy Spirit's not there at all. You, you can do that. And that's the world's method of, of doing things. And so we want to be very careful not to just adopt an effective uh, worldly method of doing it. We want to do church as best we can, how God tells us to do church. And there's a certain trust of, no, it doesn't really make sense that this teenager wants to be hanging around 50 and 60-year-olds. What's going on? That kind of proves the presence of the Spirit because it's not human. It's not a fleshly thing. Right. Um, we want to give, allow room for that sort of supernatural thing to happen. And, and I think that you can have a draw, in a sense, when you're doing evangelism. I mean, so our dodgeball days, what is it? It's, it's a big dodgeball tournament. All sorts of reasons, without the Holy Spirit, kids would want to show up and play dodgeball. And then you present them with the gospel. But that's not a church service. And so I think for evangelism, it can be more valid to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this event, or we're going to have this, you know, um, we're going to set up a corn maze and hand out, you know, I don't know. I mean, churches can do creative things where, where they, they give a, 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 a non-spiritual draw. But when you're dealing with what should we do with believers who gather, at that point, I'm not going to make any concessions to, well, people don't like, they need to learn to like. They need, to, of course, fingers want to be at finger church and eyes want to be at eye church. When you're dealing with people who profess to be Christians, I'm, I'm not playing into that. I'm not going to be like, well, we've got to give the people what they want. That, that's, that'd be the distinction. I'd be more willing to consider it if we're dealing with an evangelistic outreach event where, you know, we're going to whatever, we're going to give tractor rides or we're going to have a free potluck lunch, come and bring your, and we're going to have a free meal. And because there, of course, why would an unbeliever want to come hear the word of God? 
there's a sense in which, like, I, I get why they wouldn't be interested in coming. And so if we're trying to invite unbelievers to an event, I get how you'd, you'd probably need to put something on the hook other than, would you like to hear about how you're condemned and God has done, you know, fair enough, I get it. But when you're dealing with Christians in the church, that's, that's where I'm saying it's, that's where my criticism is landing when what we're doing is church. I don't want to add anything more or less to add more to. <laughs> Greg, Greg Sweet. Well, I don't want to derail our uh, d- discussion at all, but I just would point out that we have determined a long time ago in our church that church is for us. Right. Uh, we, we are not trying to tailor something here that's going to look attractive to the unbelievers outside that will draw them in. Uh, our, we, I mean, that's been a popular movement. Uh, it failed miserably uh, and did a lot of damage uh, to, to the churches that tried to do that. Uh, our, our church is for us, and we, of course, want to bring people to it. We want, uh, but, but honestly, our, our hope and expect, expectation is that we would reach out to our neighbors. Um, we would bring the gospel to them, not spend all our time trying to get them to come to our church. Uh, and, you know, hopefully they, you know, many of them will come to our church, but, but that's not the number one goal that and, and I, without having time to yeah. explain that fully that may seem let wrong me, no, to, me, to me, some here i'm sure let me back that up with a text greg the, the textual background to this would be first corinthians 14 where paul considers the possibility of an unbeliever showing up the church so it's not that unbelievers aren't welcome they're welcome but we're just not, they're not a big factor in when we're planning the fundamentals of what we're doing. I want my tone, demeanor to not be offensive. But I, I, someone took me out to lunch once and was asking me basically, what if someone shows up who's not a Christian? What if someone shows up who's never heard uh, truth before? I said, but they're welcome, but we're not really planning our activities around that possibility. Um, so look at what Paul, if you have a Bible, look what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 14. In an extended discussion of spiritual gifts, but it's still instructive, I think, about the potential of an unbeliever and how Paul views the purpose of church. Um, verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or an unbeliever enter. So first off, notice Paul's not assuming they're going to enter, but they might. They might. Um, he is... Um, will you not say you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So, so two things from this. One, we're not counting on unbelievers showing up. They may. If they do show up, what's the best thing for them? God's truth. What's going to convict them and what's going to expose their hearts? Truth, prophetic truth. It's not your awesome, you know, coffee bar that's going to convert them to Christ. It's going to be the truth. So, on the one hand, I'm not counting on unbelievers showing up. And two, if they do show up, the best thing they can hear is truth that exposes their hearts. 
Um, so that's, that's textually the background for, for how we factor in what we do when we gather here on Sunday morning. Now, for a different event or a different activity, we may have a different consideration. That's not what you think you're doing for dodgeball days, right? No? Yes? No? Maybe? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I'm not okay. sure what you're asking me. I'm saying you're not considering Dodgeball Day as a church service. So no, we can have different values. And so now we are considering an unbeliever is probably going to show up. And yeah, I'm, I'm saying, but as we regard what we do on Sunday, so this Bible tells us to gather together. This isn't something we came up with. And so then our question is how does God want us to gather together? And what sorts of things does God want us to do when we gather together? And so it's much more. Dad told me he wants me to do something, and he told me how he wants to do something. Let's try to do what Dad told us to do the way he told us to do it as best we can and not try to be too creative in our thinking. And what I mean by creative is like, well, maybe if we did this other thing he told us, didn't tell us to do, then why don't we just focus on doing what he told us to do? And the types of things he told us to do when we gather is to encourage one another to sing, to pray, to give preference to the word. And that's basically what takes priority in our worship service giving. are those elements and giving. Yeah, and giving. Um, okay. And, and communion. And baptism. Prayer. Did you say prayer? I did say prayer. Okay. Laying on of hands. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Other questions? Sorry, what? Oh. Other questions? Anybody? Five weeks. Come on, people. We can talk some more about this. Oh, Stephanie Lovelace has a question. It's too late. You can't take the hand down now. My son's coming. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Abner. So last week I was listening to the ABF online, and I um, kept hearing um, we're not free to, we're not free to, like with our money. And I think it was just a phrase that you guys were saying, okay. but I may, in my okay. head I thought I'm not free to. Well, I am free, but yeah. what are you... I don't know if it's just a phrase. I, I, no, no. I'm good. If I'm unclear, I would like the opportunity to clarify. I tried to distinguish where am I under compulsion. So in general, the, gen, the default for the Christian is you're free to act in faith and love. You're, there's a freedom in the spirit. They call it the law of liberty, right? So, so there are some things you're not free to. You're not free to steal you're not. What I mean by free is you're under compulsion. There's no longer the well. God leads someone this way and this way. Like stop stealing, you know. And and Paul tells the Corinthians they can't visit prostitutes. You're not free to do that. So when I'm talking about free, I mean at liberty or under compulsion is the distinction I'm trying to make. So when you use generosity, and here's the distinction: we are not free to not be generous. Or to say it positively, we must be a generous people. No Christian can say God hasn't called me to generosity. We are to be generous. Where there is freedom is where you want to be generous. So what I can't do is come to you and say, okay, Stephanie, see that person over there? You have more of this world's possessions than they do. They're your brother. They're your sister. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. Wouldn't you like it if someone gave you money? Therefore, I command you, the authority of Jesus, and his command to go give them some money. What I can't do is that. Except where you have your brother or sister in urgent need. So James talks about if your brother or sister comes to you naked without food. At that point, you're not free to say, and that's what I mean by free, you're, you're, you're under compulsion where there's urgent need in your face. You, you are not free, and, and, and that's what I mean by free. You're not, it's not voluntary. It's not an option to say, well, I don't feel led to do that. 
Go Warmby Field. I'm praying for you. Like, you got to help them. Titus talks about cases of urgent need. So apart from exigent or urgent circumstances, we're free. If you want to go be generous over here, and I want to be generous over here, and I want to go serve over here, and you want to serve over there, there's all this freedom that you can do and what God puts on your heart. But you're not free to turn to see your brother or sister lacking basic necessities of life. And that's the other part I was trying to say is you don't have this type of responsibility for people you don't know that you'll never see. So the text is they come to your door or your eye, you see them. It's not enough to say, well, there's somebody in another country. Not that those aren't good things, but I'm trying to distinguish where are you obligated, where must you do something, and where are you free to act. You must take care of urgent needs in front of you. That's, that's what I meant by free, not free. I'm trying to distinguish obligation versus a liberty in the spirit where you're not free to say, well, I don't want to be generous. But you're totally free to be generous wherever you seems good to you to be generous. I want to be generous over here. I want to give to this ministry. I want to give to this person. There's this total freedom to be generous. We must be a generous people. You're free to be generous where you want. That, that's what I meant by free, not free. Does that make more sense? Okay. But, no, no, but that, trying to make that distinction is important. Um, because you don't want to burden consciences. And, and Paul wants to really be clear. I don't want to compel you to give, he's telling the Corinthians. I, I don't, not by compulsion, not reluctantly, if it's not gladly, if it's not intentional, don't do it. And so even with Paul's fundraising for the needs of the Jerusalem church, he's not willing to say, hey, I'm an apostle. You worship a Jewish savior, so uh, pony up. Now he'll... He'll encourage them, and he'll exhort them, and he'll show them all the good they're going to get from it. He will not command them to be generous in that specific instance. You good? Okay. Okay. Oh, Joanna. Oh, no. Oh, sorry. Oh, who's Connie's next? I'm sorry, Connie. Oh, Lee. Oh, no, actually, run. No. What? <laughs> well, this Too is late. on the... Uh being generous thing mm. of, of, I mean, I'm, here's how I, I go about it. I like, I love to write checks and give money because it's wonderful to have enough money that you can share with yeah. people. So, um, but I, every ministry or every group that I give to is not an out and out Christian ministry. Right. Like some are like ones for people that repair hair lips around the world and, you know, different things like that. And there surely there couldn't be anything wrong with that. I mean, nope. I, I certainly go to the Christian ministries first, but then I have Several that I appreciate the other way. So, Good works, even if they're not doing it for the glory of God, if I'm supporting them for the glory of God, it's good. If there's people, a secular organization, mm-hmm. atheists for yeah. Africa digging wells, <laughs> I could give money to them and support their good works. Yeah. And I'm doing it to the glory of God. They're doing it for other reasons. Yeah. That's I, right. I'd have no problem supporting good works. Amen. Right? I mean, it's no different than if you buy a Happy Meal for someone or a burger for someone. The guy making the burger is not a Christian ministry, but the food's useful. Absolutely. I was going to change it back to today. Nope, she's changing it back to today. (laughs) So something that I struggle with is as a country, um, and I think as people, we especially struggle with entitlement. So 
you think on your day-to-day. Um, when I was in a bad job, I had a struggle with every day I'd think, I don't deserve this kind of job every day. I don't deserve to be yelled at on the phone. I don't deserve to, to go through this struggle. And obviously, as Christians, we know that's just not true. But how do you reconcile that with the feeling of justice? So you understand that something is wrong, but you don't want to come from a prideful place of, I don't deserve that, but you know justice-wise, it's, it's incorrect. How can, you, how can you tell the difference on the day-to-day between those two? Um, I'd say let's go to First Peter 2. In one sense, your confidence in God's final justice is what enables you to put up with injustice now. Um, I think it was Tim Keller I heard use this example. He, he had a guy at his church who'd, who'd seen horrific killings and, and racial injustice in Cambodia, the killing fields. And he said it was only his confidence that God was going to judge that sin and damn people to hell that enabled him to say, then I can love my enemy and I can turn the other cheek and I can, I can be meek and I can act that way because I'm so confident that justice will be done that I can just leave it to God. That's ultimately what Jesus does. And he's our model. So in First Peter 2, um, he, Peter says this. He's talking about submitting for the Lord's sake to mistreatment. He's using the context first of slaves whose masters beat them for no reason, even though they serve well. And then he's going to broaden it out to a general principle, and then he's going to use Jesus as the example. So um, verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And here's where he broadens it out. For this is a gracious thing when anyone mindful of God endures sorrows. While suffering unjustly, so he's applying that specific that principle specifically to a slave or a servant. But the basic principle is, if you will willingly endure mistreatment, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. So part of it would just be, it's God is pleased when you put up with someone being a jerk to you on the phone, even though it's wrong. And then you're going to see the tension here. So on the one hand, it's pleasing to God. Remind yourself of that. For what credit is it if when you uh, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And now it gets broadened out further. For to this you've been called. What's the antecedent of this? Graciously, willingly suffering mistreatment for the glory of God. For to this you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. And now it's totally broadened out. We started with servants, but now we're getting to Christ. And now we're going to look at Christ's sufferings. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And the argument there is from the greater to the lesser. He's sinless, you're sinful. The injustice done against him is infinitely greater than any injustice done against you. The argument being by implication, if he can endure it, we need to be able to endure it. If he can shut his mouth and not curse out his mistreaters, we need to be able to do it, because he would have a far more just cause, right? So what does he do? He committed no sin, neither is deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus did not say, I deserve it. Jesus did not say, it's all going to, it's, because of the glory set before me, it doesn't matter. He wants justice, 
He's just willing to trust his father's timetable for it. And so the part of us that cries out for justice is good. The Psalms echo that. And, and God would have us take that to him and say, Lord, can you vindicate me according... You read this, David, he'll say this a couple times, vindicate me according to my righteousness. And, and he's not speaking in Pauline categories where there's none righteous, no, not one. I think all David is saying is, vindicate me, I'm innocent in this matter. People are accusing me and I haven't done the thing they're accusing me of. Could you vindicate me? That's wholly right and appropriate and good to cry out to God and trust his justice. That's the piece. So it's not that Jesus doesn't think the injustice is small. I mean, we see him show up at the book of Revelation. He's, he's not forgotten, right? Uh, but he's completely willing to trust his father's time. He'll, God, if, you're, if my father, if you're not going to judge it today, I'm content with that. Want to add anything to that? No, not unless you want to clarify your question further. No, I think that's that's really good because the world right now is so loud um, and everything telling us that you deserve whatever you want. I mean, you get what you whatever you want. You should be happy. Happiness is is everything for you. And so it's hard to drown that out on the day to day, especially when you're speaking with people and they're not treating you how you think you should be treated. Right. They're not speaking to you in a way you should you think you should be spoken to. And just being able to humble yourself um, and recognize that. Well, Christ died on the cross, not for your happiness, um, but for your sins. And so it's just, it's really hard to, to drown everybody, um, yeah. everybody out, especially since the world's so loud. There's an unintentional cruelty to the, the sort of self-esteem, you deserve everything movement, because our discontent and our grumbling and our suffering is often proportional to the difference between what we expect and what we get. C.S. Lewis uses a helpful analogy of a really, really shabby, dirty hotel room with a single mattress, no bed frame, no sheets, a dingy lamp, and it's, it's this mold on the walls. And how different inhabitants might dwell in it for a week's time. One group thought they had bought a five-star hotel room one group is being smuggled out of a prison camp and being told you have to wait here a week before we can get you out of country. And the two different groups of people might have very, very different experiences in the exact same environment. What you expected you were to get, what you were looking for, what you thought you had a right to, is going to create your suffering, your displeasure, your unhappiness. I mean, you can imagine one person just being thankful they have this room and there's a light, and another person's... They were expecting something so much better that when they didn't get it, they just grumble and they're, they're unhappy. So there's a, a, an unintended consequence of telling people, you can do anything and you, can, you deserve. And, and even though we think that makes them feel good in a moment, when life doesn't deliver, <laughs> the rage, the anger, I mean, people will burn cities down, and they are. For other reasons as well, but... I'm not trying to say that that sums up the entirety of the reason, but I think it's a factor. We've got five minutes. Anything else? Is there anything you'd like to say before we close, Daniel? Anything on your heart? 
if it's okay to jump back to last week, what I'd mentioned earlier. Do it, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, I think we left this out when we were dealing with the oppression of the poor um, last week. One of the big reasons that we deal with the poor so much in such an affluent society is we have a moving scale. So it's not fair to talk about the poor today and compare them to the poor of 1950 because we've changed the actual definition of what it means to be poor. So we have to recognize that when you hear statistics come out from the government about how many poor people there are, who's below poverty, who's at poverty, who's above poverty, well, guess what? People define poverty. And they've linked poverty to certain statistics or certain uh, uh, characteristics that change over time. So today's poor would have been wealthy in 1950 by in terms of what conveniences do you have? How readily do you have uh, access to food, medical coverage? What medical coverage do you have? We're comparing apples to oranges when we compare today's poor to 1950s poor. So no matter what, and this is another problem, the, the, whoever's in charge, I don't know who decides these things, but when you, when you have income statistics um, usually connected to income taxes, the government produces these, they've decided so, such and such a percentage will be poor. So we're going to define the poor as the lowest 10% of our society. Well, that doesn't work in parts of Zimbabwe, where the lowest 10% and the lowest 90% are the same. That's not helpful. And in our society, if the lowest 10% of our society aren't struggling to get food and shelter, why are we calling them poor? You see the the problem. We've determined there will be 10% poor. Um, and then the other, the other, so that's a, I'm not saying there are not poor people. There are poor people. It's really hard to find them because we're calling everyone poor. We're calling 20, 10, 20% of our society poor. That's not really accurate. Let's identify the ones who really are poor so that we can help them. Then the second thing that I find, I, I, this angers me. I, I don't know how this couldn't be deceptive, wicked lies. When the government's, puts out the statistics of poverty, they deliberately exclude all of the benefits that those people receive from the government. I cry foul at that. Because most of us, well, not most of us, many of us would be below poverty if we got free health care and we had a check from welfare and we got food from the food bank. If you took those parts of our expenditures out of our income, we'd be below poverty line, many of us. So what that's saying is, hey, this person's poor. We're going to call them poor because they make $25,000 a year, and that's below the poverty line. And what they leave out is, but they get free health care. I'm guessing that if we took a, you know, a survey of everyone in this room... What we pay per month for health care would be somewhere around $1,000 a month for a family. 
Well, now add that on. They don't make $20,000. They make $32,000 a year. Equivalent because they get their health care paid for. And then they leave out the, the benefits of food stamps, uh, other welfare payments, etc. And they say, this person only makes $20,000. That's not fair because I now am thinking this person's only making $25,000 when in reality what they're making is $25,000 plus $20,000 in benefits. Whoa, they're not poor anymore. They're not poor. Well, it's like the difference of a, a salaried position, what they get paid and the f- total value of their pay package. Yeah. Um, when you include benefits or a company car or you include right. insurance, that's all part of the value of what the person's income is. Right. And we recognize that in every other category. If, so if you're yeah. applying for two jobs, one job paid you $30,000 a year plus $12,000 worth of medical coverage, they pay for your health insurance for free. And then the other job paid you $38,000. Well, the thirty-eight looks better on paper. Which is better? The $30,000 because you get a $12,000 benefit with it. And so all of that's to say, not that there are not poor. There are poor in our nation. I think the, the percentage of poor is so much lower than we would think because all we're told all the time is, oh, here's how many people are in poverty. Let's talk about what poverty means. What other benefits do those people in poverty receive and now we can identify okay there are people who are poor those are the ones we should be helping but we want a big group of poor so that we can appeal to everyone you need to do something about this large group of poor that was from last week but uh-huh. i thought it was worth mentioning yeah. i took i took up more time oh, you're fine Sorry. you're fine well, anyway, again, thank you for your patience with this. I, I know some of you who are encountering more of what's going on, this may make, seem more, make sense why we took so much time with it. Others of you, I'm sure, are happy to get back to Ephesians. I promise the long sermons. Daniel set the record two weeks ago, and I had to take it back today. That's what happened. Did he take it back? I don't think he took it back. I don't know. Daniel went 72 minutes. Like he took it back. Daniel went 72, <laughs> 72 minutes to... <laughs> We're track. Thank you very much. God bless. And um, I appreciate your patience with us. We'll try to rein it back in. Thank you.